Hey folks, welcome to episode 171 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features William Stein. He's the founder and CEO of Sage Math, a former professor at University of Washington, a research mathematician, a vert skateboarder for decades, the co-founder of Seattle Vert Ramp, and he's Bella's companion a dog that's a healer with a love for outdoor travel. Together, they tour the backcountry of the Cascades in search of adventure and views from high places. Before we begin, I'm going to play you with a song by John Hyatt and the Goners called My Dog and Me. Enjoy! Trip in yeah. a remote volcano in Washington. 
How was that? Yeah. Uh, incredible. Yeah, so I climbed Mount Adams starting from um, the Pineside Snow Park. So that's, I ended up spending a total of four days and three nights to do it. Um, and I, you know, started the snow parks, uh, skied or split boarded all the way up to um, lunch counter, which is around 9,000 feet. And that took two days. Um, I'm sure some people could do it in one, but not me. because so it's pretty far. It's, uh, I think at least 13 or 14 miles. Wow. And is just seeing the lunch counter. Is yeah, access yeah. always that challenging? No. So in, this is in the middle of January in the winter. And the main access road to Cold Springs Campground, where the normal like summer trailhead is, is completely snowed in right now. Um, so you couldn't go down it at all. And uh, that adds maybe eight or nine miles to the trip. So that adds an extra day. Um, so, yeah. So, and it also you start at 2,700 feet at the um, snow park and uh, lunch counters over 9,000 feet. So that's 6,000 feet to get up to lunch counter. And then there's another 3,200 feet to get to the summit of Mount Adams, which I did on the third day. Um, and then I went back to camp because it was you know pretty late and then camped one day and then got up early the fourth day and then went all the way back. And getting back was, I mean, much, much easier than getting up there <laughs> because it's, it's mostly downhill. I was snowboarding and there's only, I mean, there's only two miles or so that's flat where you have to kind of ski or walk, um, which is nice. Uh, I've done Glacier Peak before, and that is brutal in comparison because there's like, you know, seven or eight miles that are just basically flat with trees you have to climb over and stuff. So uh, on the way out. So Adams is great. I did it solo also, uh, just me and my dog. And uh, it's relatively safe to do solo compared to a lot of the other volcanoes because you don't have to worry about crevasses if you go up the southern route um the avalanche hazard was pretty low um there's not a lot of cliffs i mean it's dangerous but it's a lot safer than than um than baker or rainier or glacier peak or something so do a lot of people do this um this mountain in the winter um my impression is no uh and i'm guessing people who do usually snowmobile and then park their snowmobile, like they sled up, park their snowmobile, and then um, then it's similar to the summer distance. Uh, I did see, so the entire time I was within the wilderness boundary, I saw one other skier over four days. So I think, and the weather was pretty good. So that's, I think an indication it's not super, I mean, it's, it's probably like on average one person, one or two people a day, maybe during the winter. Um, and, you know, you don't find a lot. I searched pretty hard for trip reports, um, either hikers, uh, skiers, whatever, in January up Mount Adams. I couldn't find anything. So, um, but, you know, if you look in guidebooks, there are discussions of, you know, how to ski Mount Adams in the winter. And so it's certainly something people do. Um, and it's it's pretty nice. I mean, there's a huge amount of open slope that you go down on the way out snowboarding. Oh, wow. And it's and it's a beautiful spot because, I mean, nothing to do with winter, but Mount Adams, you can see 
Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, um, Glacier Peak, Mount Baker, uh, Mount Hood, Mount Jefferson. Like you can see all of them. It's a really amazing location regarding views. That's incredible. Have you, um, I'm sure you've been up to like a skyscraper or um, something that's a little more easy to access for its view. Mm-hmm. What is it? What's the difference for people who haven't done something like this? What's the difference between admiring a view that's easy to access and admiring a view that takes days of effort and, and has all these obstacles to get there? Um, for me personally, I mean, there's something really special about um, being that remote from civilization, and it's more remote, you know, in the in the winter because it's there's less people, way less people out there, and it's more difficult to get to. So it's more of a challenge. Um, and there's it's also, I mean, there's not a lot of like living things out there in the winter. There's no you don't see birds or animals at all. Um, you just see all these ice formations from the wind. Um, so the, the actual location itself is just very, it's like being on a, another planet kind of um, feeling. You know, when you're wearing so much gear with a helmet and goggles and a, a mask, it's like you're wearing, uh, it's just you're in, you're in a very, very, very different location. Um, I mean, the altitude, it's over 12,000 feet. So the altitude is pretty noticeable, uh, at least for me. I'm not good at high altitude headaches, and exhausted and um so it's just a, there's a whole bunch of different challenges that put you in a different frame of mind mm-hmm. than you might get you know on a single day hike or at least for me um it's a completely different experience for me um i like mount adams a lot though because it's if you if you just keep going it's pretty likely you can successfully get to the top mm-hmm. because you're you probably won't have to turn around due to you know, there being too many crevasses or navigation issues. The hardest thing about Mount Adams by far is not getting um, disoriented coming down and going the wrong way down the mountain. It, that mountain just actively tries to kick you off in the wrong direction. It is really uh, dangerous coming down. So you have to remember to, you know, triple check your direction as you come down. What's that like then descending? Like what's disorientation like descending? Are you just excited where the slope's taking you and stoked usually? Or um, is it like so, flying a plane and getting confused where the horizon I, is? I think it's, so what happens is there's a lot of ridges. There's a whole bunch of ridges um, that block your visibility. Um, so you can't, you know, you look to your left and you just see this ridge and you think, oh, I can't even see what's over there. That can't be the way to go. And then you start thinking, okay, I need to get down this. And there's a puzzle to figure out how you're going to get down it um, around all the ice, you know, where there's snow. And you just want to figure out where, which part is reasonably steep but not too steep. So you start really obsessing about how do you get down this safely? But then you, you have to stop and think, wait, am I even supposed to go down that? If I go down that, what's going to happen? And it's really easy to have your mind get taken over by problem solving about how to get down something rather than should you get down the thing? Um, at least for me, I, I um, summited Adams in fall 2019 and I completely messed up glissading down and went down the wrong way about a mile and it sucked. Oh. <laughs> it was, and then it got, it was November. So the short, almost the shortest day of the year. It's like, you know, I had to scramble back through in the dark with, you know, rocks falling all over the place. And that was tricky with the dog too, because um, you have to coordinate with her and not hit a rock into her 
you're knocking rocks loose. She doesn't have a helmet because I don't know if dogs have helmets, but I've never, never found one. Um, so yeah, that, that was pretty scary. And so I was determined not to make that same mistake this time. And yet still, I did start going down the wrong way for about five minutes. And then I double checked my GPS and I was like, whoa, I can't believe I completely messed this up in the same way. So I hiked back up. It only took me maybe 15 minutes to get back up, but um, I was pretty shocked to make that same mistake again. If you read trip reports, you'll find and guidebooks, they frequently cite this as one of the biggest issues is disorientation. Do you find the the problem solving and and failure and success um, in mountaineering? similar experience in like you know your professional life and other things or is it like a unique dynamic uh, it has it definitely has some similarities but much less than i i think much less than people often say like you'll hear research mathematicians describe um so i'm a research my background is in research mathematics um you'll hear them describe problems they solve in math with uh, mountaineering analogies frequently but um, there's a lot of significant differences between the two. Um, I mean, one is the scope of time is usually uh, like you, you, know, you go to the mountain and then it's going to be a couple of days and then you're going to be done one way or the other. Whereas with mathematics and also, you know, business, software engineering problems, that sort of thing, they all can take, they can easily span several months or even years where you're focused on that one problem. Um, especially in math research, you can easily, you know, spend quite a long time on one thing. I know in, in climbing and mountaineering, people, you know, keep going back to the same place or thinking about how they're going to get up a certain mountain, but um, it's still a different experience because you're not actually there spending months usually, at least not me. I mean, I, I know some people are, but for me, it's not like that. The other part is obviously the um, issue of, of hazards and danger, like, you know, doing mathematics or anything else I do, the, um, it's simply not that dangerous. Uh, mountaineering is objectively significantly more dangerous. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways that you could get hurt really badly or die. Um, I mean, another thing I do a lot is skateboarding uh, vert ramps, so skateboarding large half pipes. And I, I co-own Seattle Vert Ramp up here, which is, um, you know, it's a full-size competition spec vert ramp. But people essentially never die skateboarding vert. Um it happened. I think I know of one case ever last summer when somebody was wearing the wrong type of helmet, like they were wearing a rock climbing foam helmet instead of a proper, um, you know, plastic case helmet, like is designed for skateboarding. They fell, hit their head and did actually die. That's the only case I know of ever. Um, and so, whereas, you know, with mountaineering, it's, uh, you know, you could do absolutely everything right as far as, you know, you can, t- as far as you know, and then some random thing like an avalanche could just take you out. And so, or a cornice could fall. There's a lot of random factors that you have to worry about. That said, the top, it seems like the top professional people at Mountaineering are usually pretty damn good at avoiding these objective hazards. So it seems plausible. It's just more dangerous though. Like when you're standing there on the side of a mountain and you think, you know, if I faint right now, I'm really screwed. Whereas, you know, you're sitting there working at a desk and you faint, you just maybe you bump your head a little, but you're not going to slide all the way down the mountain and off the side. <laughs> yeah. But, and that's a huge difference. I mean, just having that fire under your feet just changes everything, I think. 
yeah, it's it's interesting being on like a what a 45 degree slope, you know, even in the middle of the summer and it's grassy and there isn't rocks and like taking I've taken lots of people up there and even my own son. And like it can be really it's pretty alarming visually. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's mostly sky that you see or or space and and a little bit of ground. And you're used used to see having the horizon or the ground fill your vision so much more. You know, and that's uh, yeah, a terrifying illusion, and then a terrifying reality to boot, right? Yeah, I was thinking about exactly that a lot. Walking up the, um, there's this really long thirty degree slope when you go up Adams from lunch counter up to Pikers Peak, and it's just super flat. But uh, in terms of characteristics of the landscape, it's just this like flat ramp. It's thirty degrees, or around thirty degrees. So it's not as steep as you as forty five, but um, it's really disorienting because you're just like, there's the ground as far as you can see in each direction. And it's at 30 degrees and, you know, you could just start sliding down it. Um, and you have to avoid, you get like almost disoriented by, uh, by looking at it in the wrong way. Do you ever, um, when we go places, um, you look to the future, right. To, to anticipate when things are going to end. And you can generally assess how long you have to go until you've reached your goal. And it helps when you're coping with challenging things. Mm -hmm. what have you noticed what a clear, like, you know, um, like a, almost like Mount St. Helens, I'm thinking about, or like a snow slope that's pretty featureless. Have you noticed that it's, that it's hard to like judge distance accurately? Because I yeah. like going up a blank snow slope, I'm like, it's not that far. And then I, with no points of reference, no trees, just full white snow slope. And it just feels like nothing's changing. And I'm moving for hours and hours and hours. But yeah. I, or not hours, but a long time, you know. For me, I, um, I tend to stare a lot more at my altimeter mm -hmm. in those settings and just kind of abstract away. Like, I, I think more of maybe like an airplane pilot might where you're relying on your instruments mm -hmm. instead of your senses. Um, and yeah, I make really heavy use of GPS whenever I'm on a mountain. Like I have a, a GPS watch, a Garmin GPS watch, and then my phone with a GPS app. And I, so I have at least two um, GPS receivers. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even consider going out without at least two, you know, like with redundant GPS. Um, Cause that can make such a big difference if you get in a wide out. And also just, it gives you um you don't have to rely on your senses, which um, at least for me are not very, not very good and can, can easily be very misleading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your goal there is from what it sounds like is not just because it'll make it more of an enjoyable experience, but it's because you're trying to mitigate the dangers and potential yeah. hazards, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, what do you think of, of uh, taking on these voluntary experiences or just, having danger in your life and like what does that what does that mean to you and to add to that if you could take like an objective in the mountains would it be the same experience if there was absent of danger and that like safety was guaranteed or something yeah it definitely would not be the same experience if uh, safety was guaranteed yeah I, I think it would not be anywhere near the same experience it would be more like playing a VR game or something, I think. Um, yeah, it's, I think anyone who does any mountaineering has to contend with this, you know, this 
this sort of paradoxical question that you just asked, um, which is that, and, you, and somehow the answer is almost like you wish, like you don't have a choice because you, what, what's happened is you've done it enough to realize how incredibly um, beneficial it is to you personally. And also how much people enjoy seeing and hearing about your adventures to some like the pictures you take and, um, I mean, there's just a lot of benefit to you and to other people. Uh, and also, I mean, it really, it, it gets you out of that feeling of being, it, well, especially nowadays where it's super hard to just fly to Europe um, because of COVID. It's, it, there's not necessarily a lot of it, um, ways to get out of like being stuck in a boring place, but going out in the mountains a few days is a really um, effective way of doing that. Um, if you can, you know, if you can manage to do it safely. Um, but, you know, I used to tell myself lies like, you know, driving to the trailhead is way more dangerous than the, than, you know, what I'm actually going to do out there. But that's actually not true. I looked up the statistics and really, it is not true. Cars are, you know, you're in a, when you're in a car, you have this like armor around you and you also have, a significant amount of impact on how dangerous it is dangerous it is based on how you drive like if you drive really defensively that um, reduces your chances of being killed in an accident and on average people can drive about 100 million miles i think before they're likely to die in an accident like there's some it's you can you, people and if you look at the number of people that die each year from car crashes it's really not that big given how far they've driven and what other people and what people are dying from so if you just objectively look at the data, driving in a car is not more dangerous than um, climbing a volcano and then snowboarding down it or um, you know, climbing like, like climbing hood, climbing Mount Hood. People do die. You know, last year, somebody slipped, some 60 year old slipped and went into the fumarole there and then died. And that's really, really, really sad. But it's it's dangerous. And you have to really acknowledge their, that reality. So, um, yeah, I, I think I have no answer to your question cause it's kind of paradoxical, except it, you just want to keep your eyes completely open that it is dangerous. Um, the longer you do it and the more you learn about how to stay safe, the better. Um, and, uh, you know, try to be honest that it, that, uh, some things are a lot less dangerous, like, driving <laughs> so do you um do you find that there's uh that there's a lot of like general value in encountering some kind of danger and i'm like not encounter and doing things that are that are that can be dangerous because i think of people that i grew up with in northern idaho but i meet people here in washington similar thing that they're not familiar with driving on highways and mm -hmm. oh, yeah, asking yeah. me like hey can we switch seats so you can drive and you know I'm, or in the rain for yeah, something to yeah. be in southern california yeah <laughs> yeah and I'm, and I'm like i'm fine with that you know and that you know i get kind of excited by these things um but like if you didn't have that fear those people might feel more inclined to go to like concerts or go to classes in the city or you know, mm -hmm. the going outside of your comfort zone maybe might be the, the similar thing. Um, 
And I, it's a really objective way to know whether like, it's easy to delude yourself into thinking you're facing your fears or that you're learning how to deal with fear, but uh, actually doing something dangerous where you have to face your fear or uh, there are serious consequences and it's very objective either, you know, you will like free soloing a cliff, which I don't do any of, but um, you know, that's the sort of thing where you either face your fear or you know, there are dire consequences. I think that it's, it's, um, it's just more real and more likely to ensure that you're really uh, properly facing and understanding your own fear than, than certain other things. Um, uh, yeah. So, so I think that, yeah, if danger isn't involved, it's hard to know if you're really, you know, if you're really facing your fears or not, mm-hmm. whereas typically, typically the things that objectively will tell you, yes, you did successfully face your fears and get beyond something. They typically are dangerous mm-hmm. um, in my experience. And is that like, um, have you ever met somebody who, who didn't understand the hazards of something and they overestimated their abilities like habitually or yeah yeah the those people are scary <laughs> yeah um, um do, do you feel yeah. like it's a similar experience maybe for them when they encounter danger that there's something there to learn that they can learn from it for themselves or do you just think it's a very frightening thing to watch it's a frightening thing to watch. I, um, yeah, I've certainly met people who, you know, I, I've asked them, you know, are you afraid of this or whatever? And they're like, nope, I'm not afraid of anything. And it's true, but they are definitely not living life in the right way. <laughs> I mean, they, they, um, yeah, lack of like, the, it's only good to not be to master your fear. If you understand properly what you're mastering and that, you know, that you should be afraid, um, until you calm your nerves, I think, um, like just, just like deleting fear from your brain is not, is a really bad, really bad, dangerous thing to do. I guess alcohol, you know, kind of does that as a, you know, various drugs can do that, but they lead to really bad consequences sometimes. So it'd be fair to say that sometimes when you engage in danger and hazards, you're not necessarily trying to delete your fear, remove your fear, but maybe calibrate your fear. Exactly. Yeah. And also just, you know, that the thing you're about to do is dangerous. You get this feeling of like, you kind of just want to lay down and cry or, you know, you, or you start shaking and you have to calm your nerves and do it. Or you, I mean, there's no other option. You just have to. Um, otherwise you're going to be stuck out in the mountains forever or, and you'll die. <laughs> it's either you calm your nerves and go through it or you die. Um, so, so that's something I found was, I feel is very unique about not just necessarily mountaineering, but I'm thinking like mountaineering, trail running, maybe like yeah. rock climbing outdoors, as opposed to like, you know, skateboarding or, um, maybe, I don't know, parkour kind of thing, because you get to this point where you're committed and yeah, very commitment good. is generally, I think is usually an abstraction in our kind of modern era but there's these experiences where it takes that abstraction and it is a very real thing you know i've been crying 15 miles out in the wilderness because of my legs hurt and i overestimated how much mileage i could do it's like you're gonna just sleep and get to the car (laughs) at night or you're gonna you're gonna go now you're gonna run yeah no it's a 
Absolutely massive, different level of commitment. That is a really good point. Um, going out far, far into the woods. Like I made a mistake once um, when I was trying to go, the first time I tried to get to Glacier Peak and I ended up like down by the river, maybe eight miles from the nearest trail in incredibly thick, you know, sloggy, raining weather for two days where it was like just all day long threading my way through this, you know, mess of off trail, you know, crap. And I just had to, I mean, I had to do it because it was either go forward or you just, I mean, there's no other option. You're just stuck there. Um, and you don't want to freeze, but yeah, uh, in skateboarding, the there's commitment, like you get obsessed with trying to land a trick before the session's over, but it's exactly what you're saying. It's an abstraction and you can simply decide at any moment, okay, I'm going to give up on trying to land this trick or, and I'm going to go home. Uh, and, uh, yeah, with, uh, with mountaineering, that's, it's, I mean, to a tiny extent, obviously there's the potential of pushing a button on a, on a Garmin inReach or something and, and waiting a, and setting up camp and waiting a day for them to rescue you if they actually were to do so. But, um, but, uh, that's pretty iffy and you really better have a very good reason to do that. Um, and by the way, I've, I've spent hundreds of days out in the woods with my dog over the last four years now, or three and a half years. And neither of us have ever been injured beyond any, like sort of minor scratches or like, you know, sores on our feet, that sort of standard stuff, mm -hmm. but no actual, you know, serious injuries were, um, I've been hurt a lot worse, uh, you know, snowboarding at resorts or skateboarding on ramps. And I haven't, I've, neither of us have been hurt at all. Um, I think the nature of mountaineering is you either get hurt really badly <laughs> and die. It's like much more likely to be either death or nothing. Mm -hmm. Whereas skateboarding, it's very likely it won't be death, but it will be something. So it's like a very different range of injury options. Um, do so, you, do you notice that um, that the way you that you, the way you act um, and your your goals, your values, and uh, even your boundaries are are shaped. Uh, by knowing that in like mountaineering it's like either death you know or yeah. likely no injury and then skateboarding it's minor injury you know not likely to die because i find myself like doing these mountaineering things where it's not like apparent that i'm gonna you know break an ankle or like something like that but you know i could die and for some reason i have a pretty decent time at like committing in that mm -hmm. place and, and pushing and getting a little in over my head sometimes but making it out um mm -hmm. But in skateboarding, like I, I have a very hard time compared to some of my peers um, being able to commit, you know, in rock climbing, sport climbing specifically. It's like, oh, you know, I fantasize about what I'm going to break. And for me, that's like more of an obstacle than fantasizing I might die. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, for sk in skateboarding, uh, I did a lot when I was a kid in which I got hurt a lot, but I healed quickly. And then I started again about 12 years ago and got way back into skateboarding. And I don't know, for the first six or seven years, I got hurt a lot. Like I always had a bruise or, you know, a twe tweaked ankle or sprained something. And then after about six or seven years, something converged where I got way better at falling, but I also got way wimpier in terms of what you were just describing, mm -hmm. um, where instead of just really going for landing something, I would you know, spend four or five sessions trying to learn the trick so I could do it without uh, slamming at all. 
and or I would never get there. <laughs> so um, and I definitely like slowed down a lot in getting better at learning tricks, but I also tend to like slam much, much less than I used to. So I'm not sure what that says, except part of it's just making a conscious decision for me at my age, which is 47, that I'm skateboarding for, you know, fun and exercise because it feels cool, not because I have any, you know, like big goals regarding major tricks to learn or, or anything like that. Um, whereas when I was younger, it was, you know, a lot different. So I think that there's, there's a, like a wide range of, of uh, ways to approach these things. And when you go out to the mountains, it's often clear there's an objective, like get to the top of the mountain and then snowboard down without getting hurt at all or without dying. And so you want to be very conservative subject to those constraints if, if possible. That um, makes sense. Because um, yeah. when I can choose to be conservative, right, and I can still accomplish my goal, then I, I feel like I'm doing everything in my control to like, you know, overcome the hazards that are in front of me. And for me, that's easy to release myself to that, you know? Yeah. With mountaineering, it's, a, there's so much strategy in terms of um, which route you're going to take and how to, you know, get close enough to see if a certain route's good or not. Um, so it's a, that's very different than like say skateboarding where at least vert skateboarding, the ramp is exactly the same every time you go, like the conditions, your equipment, it's all identical. Whereas with the mountain, you have to really read the mountain and listen to it. And, um, that that's another like major difference between the two situations. And like one slight mistake in route in choosing your route with mountaineering, you could end up costing you several days and fail at your objective. Um, but is this, is that, is that just like the, the downside or the, 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 the difficulty of mountaineering and the difficulty of skateboarding yeah. or did those satisfy you having those constraints and consequences in those experiences? It's weird because for me, if I try to go climb a mountain and fail, perhaps because of choosing the wrong route, it really, really, really bugs me. And I find the whole thing much less satisfying. And I really feel like I failed at what I tried to do. And, um, Whereas with skateboarding, I pretty much evaluate it based on when I get back in the car after a session, uh, you know, do I feel like I just had fun, which may have nothing to do with how well I skate or if I learn any tricks could have to do with just the other guys that are, or people that are at the ramp. Um, or even if I skate really badly, but find a way to have fun, I'm happy about that, but it's completely different with mountains. Like if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to spend four days, hundred percent constant focused on trying to get to the top of a mountain and back. And I mess and I'm, you know, and like a thousand feet from the top, I decided to turn around because I wimp out or I made a bad choice or something. Uh, I definitely do not feel happy <laughs> at the end. So I don't know. It's just me and I'm, and, you know, everybody's different, but they're very, very different activities that way. Um, With, so when you were, when you're mountaineering, you're going up Adams, to, to add to it, I noticed when, when you're in the snow, it's even more committing than just being, you know, 15 miles in the back country when it's in the middle of the summer, because um, you're, you're depending on flotation, right, to, to yeah. be able to travel the snow, because, I mean, uh, I could imagine if you didn't have snowshoes or, uh, or like ski mountaineering equipment, would you be able to walk back? No, well, you could, but it would be I mean, the effort it takes is like an order of magnitude more in certain snow conditions. 
So you become very aware of this when you're snowboarding down because you hit flat spots where you have to walk and it is brutal. <laughs> you take your board off and it's like every step, you know, you're sinking down to your knees, you know, just going like hundred feet can be really brutal. And, and um, it depends entirely on the snow conditions. It could be fine um, or it could be just almost impossible. Uh, so there is that. And the other thing is, you know, as well, unlike in the summer, it's really hard to make it through the night if you don't have the proper gear um, because there's snow on the ground and it's potentially very cold and windy. And I mean, it can be, it fortunately wasn't when I went up two weeks ago, but it can be 60, 70, 80 mile per hour winds up there. Um, it's, it's really difficult. Uh, it, it was like 30 mile an hour winds max when I was up there and wow. you have to spend, I spent a lot of time, you know, watching weather forecasts ahead of time, looking for the right window. I spent maybe two or three months waiting for a window that looked good. And, you know, the forecasts seven or eight days always look really good until they get more information and then it gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> the tension builds. Yeah. Yeah. But so when you're going out out there and you're you know you're on a four-day trip um and you you realize that the further and further you go out until you're like middle way through you're like becoming more committed do you mm -hmm. are you just like um very relaxed about the potential consequences you just like throw yourself out there and know that things can go wrong and you could be like alone out there and you just that's that's like life right that's the potential dangers that you have to accept or do you spend your time like developing skills and, and learning how to mitigate those dangers so that when you're out there, you have a reasonable to you amount of confidence that you're going to make it out of this thing. And it's like proving to yourself, look, yeah, definitely the latter as much as possible. Like, you know, I carry a first aid kit. Um, you know, I, I heard about somebody who I think died last summer hiking where they fell on a cliff, broke their leg and then bled out. And there was an interesting discussion on Facebook where they pointed out there's a Israeli army tourniquet that you can get. It's pretty small, easy to carry. And if you're in a situation where you're injured or you meet somebody on the trail is injured and bleeding out, you can, at least there's some hope you could stop the bleeding. So I, you know, throw one of those in my pack always. So there's certain little things like that. And, you know, if, if I had to limp out and it took me, you know, five hard, really hard days, you know, to get somewhere where I could get rescued or whatever, I'm pretty confident I have the, um, if there's any physical way I could do it, I would. Um, and at least my dog's around to keep me company. Yeah. So there's that too. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, it's a game changer, these Garmin inReaches and, you know, these other satellite communication devices. You can be anywhere on the planet and send a message that um, search and rescue will get in a couple of hours. So, uh, I mean, it that is an absolute game changer in terms of the danger. I didn't know about those for like the first two years that I, you know, went out in the mountains. And when I found out about them, you know, I definitely breathed a sigh of relief um, because it really dramatically changes your odds. Uh, you know, when you hear about people disappearing out there uh, and then they get searched for for months, you know, they didn't just have a Garmin inReach and set it off. If they did, they would have, they, they, you know, they would have been found for sure. Um, so, yeah, one thing I kind of try to guard against is often when I think about going out in the mountains from at home, it seems kind of impossible and dangerous. Like, how can you really camp in the snow, you know, at 11,000 feet or whatever? Um, but then when you're actually when I'm actually out there, I feel really safe and that it isn't dangerous most of the time. I mean, because usually you're in like 
you know, you're on a gentle slope. There's snow everywhere. If you fall down, you just fall in the snow. Um, there's no cars to hit you. There's like, like there's so there's no people to cause trouble. There's like all the things that are in your, there's no germs because for the most part, because there's nobody around. So like all the things you're scared of in daily life are not there. Um, so you have to remind yourself of what the dangers actually are. But I've, you know, often felt like days out there, I feel safer than ever. But again, it's just a feeling, which is not necessarily logical. But I bet a lot of people understand that feeling. Well, and that's where I, you know, I get to the place where oftentimes things that are logically or where you're logically safe, right, um, don't necessarily feel that way. And we have like um, some people um, have these things in our society where people feel like maybe anxious or maybe, mm -hmm. you know, very nervous um, and uh, even for like the potential hazards that are in life. Right. Um, I'd almost think I had a friend and he was agoraphobic. This is really extreme, but he, yeah, he got yeah. jumped and he didn't want to leave his house because he was, you know, afraid of, of whatever that was getting hurt and things like that. But on the, but I believe that like, it's more, I see more people have like this similar feelings, but chronically and, and not as acute and not just to, I don't want to drive on the highway to go into the city, but like, you know, me, when I'd go into a job interview, I don't even know. I didn't interview the person interviewing me. I was just like super scared and, you know, worried about the interview. I go to talk to a bank teller and I'm just like getting all nervous and clammy to talk to them. Yeah, it's like, yeah. What's the real consequences or the dangers of this? And there's danger to socializing. Cause like, you know, I could remove my, or have bad credibility. Um, and I could, you know, uh, lose my community and things like that. But the, the actual danger is not as much as I might perceive it at a given time. And it's like, how do I calibrate this? And some people would be like, well, we need to create like different spaces within our society so that you can be free of those feelings. And so that those feelings aren't a part of your life. Um, and, and then like, I've even heard like top down society might make you feel this way. And I don't really like challenge a lot of that. But I realize that my anxiety how I feel is not always congruent with how things rationally are and I have to like calibrate my way towards that and I've I've told myself it's good for you to go running or you know like it's okay I can climb this lead this 5-8 route um, and then I'm like no and I go and do some scary like third class unrope scrambling to go set up the anchors and top rope because it's not accessible um all of it's irrational and perhaps even more dangerous than if I just committed to my task at hand. And I, I, I've told myself time and time and again, like, like I lecture my son, I explain how he should feel or how he can cope with the situation, but that doesn't seem to help me as much as having experiences where, you know, I can iterate confidence and I can iterate mitigation of hazards and things like that, or fail, and realize that I could have like made it to the summit. That would have been a fine third class scramble. All, all of these things. Yeah. Um, I, I guess one thing related to all. So I definitely think going out in the mountains a few days as a for some people, definitely for me, is a really good way of calibrating or recalibrating um, my feelings of fear about all of those things you were just describing, which I very much have as well, and always you know always have had um and one way in which it works i've noticed somehow um you pay a lot more after a while being away from all of civilization in a in what feels like an alien world um 
you start to pay a lot more attention to what you put into your body in terms of food, but also thoughts and sound, like all of your, all of your inputs, you just start paying a lot more attention to them. Um, partly because you need to, to be aware of your environment uh, since it's sort of a survival thing, but also uh, the inputs are much more natural when you're literally just way out in the woods. Um, and then you start realizing how much in daily life, the, the inputs that you have are, um, it's sort of like you're just, you know, drinking from all these sources of information, like the news and all the other things, but in, a, in an unrestrained way, and then eating huge amounts of, you know, junk food or whatever. Um, it's, it's really nice to recalibrate by just having a situation instead of by force of will reducing the dials for all those things. It's an instinct to do so um, once you're out in nature for a couple, for a while, for a certain amount of time in certain environments, in my experience. Um, not always, but, but I found usually if I, if I go out for a very long time like that, it um, is a very, for me at least, a very positive experience in terms of perspective. Um, What's it like um, sharing the sharing mountaineering with your dog? I, and I don't have a lot of experience um, growing up or raising dogs. And I'm coming to this place where I'm learning more and more about animals. And I realize that animals aren't, I don't mean to sound this rude, aren't like, like objective, like, like things that just exist in your house, you know, like, uh, like, like, like things that have sentimental value, right? Or like a stuffed animal that you love. I realize that like, you like communicate and develop a bond with these animals like you would another person or a child. is that fair? Yeah. So for me, I grew up um, for the first 10 years of my life in rural Oregon on a farm. And as a little kid, I had you know, no idea that you're not supposed to full on talk to animals or, I mean, which you, I don't think you should, I think you should actually, but, but I mean, I grew up, I would go to school when I came home from school, I would tell my horse, all about my day at school. And in my mind, there was not even, that wasn't even the slightly, wasn't even the, it wasn't even a slightly odd thing to do. Um, so, so I have maybe a different or more rural perspective on animals than a lot of people that didn't grow up around them in the same way. Um, so there's that. The other thing is, so I uh, got a blue healer, which is similar to the dog I grew up with in 2018, um, almost four years ago. And I started taking her on walks and then started taking her walks in the woods. And then she's the one that got me into mountaineering and snowshoeing and then splitboarding. Um, it's the, I, I've never once gone out, you know, in the last four years without her hundred percent of the time she's been there. So it's not like it's my thing that I'm dragging her on at all. Um, I mean, I did like hiking in the you know mountains when I was a teenager, but um, barely at all until recently, and only because of her. And so, so that's one thing that's that's unique, and it's because she likes it so much. Like the second we get to a trailhead, she is like ridiculously happy and excited. And sometimes she doesn't want to get back in the car when we get back from the you know hike. She'll like try to hide in the ditch to not get back in the car because she loves being in the woods so much. Like big smile it's just so clear she loves it she loves the snow she just loves being out there so they'll like wag their wag their tail try to hide and like play little games yeah. like that wow yep. yeah um she's certainly very smart as uh, did a ton of classes with her in terms of training uh which is which is really helpful um and yeah so we've 
So we've gone out quite a bit over the last couple of years, three and a half years total. And she's climbed all of the big volcanoes except Mount Rainier up here, uh, including Mount Hood, which is the hardest in terms of the Mount Hood is really steep. So getting up that with her was not easy. Um, and she, you know, you can't just throw in her back in my backpack because she weighs over 50 pounds. Oh my. So she, so you know, we have to we have some tricky system where I have her on a harness, she's leashed, so I don't have to worry about her sliding down into the fumarole at the bottom mm-hmm. of Mount Hood. And um, you know, we I have ice axe crampons, I go up a bit, you know, slam the axe into the ground, and then she comes up and she often lean against my leg on something that's really steep. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just take it really, really slow and careful. Um, and yeah, we, we made it to the, to, to the top of all these. We did Mount Baker, for example, solo, just me and her. Um, we went when there was maximal snowpack so that, um, crevasses weren't an issue. I mean, they're always an issue. It was definitely dangerous, but, and I ill-advised, I don't recommend anyone doing it, but, um, but we did do it and it went really well. Um, so yeah, it's, so it's, I, I guess it's just different because for me, really, I've never once gone on any of these trips without her. She's been there hundred percent of the time. So, um, and I usually go solo partly because it makes it easier for me to really pay attention to her needs, especially when we're going down a mountain snowboarding. Like if she's going slow, I'll stop and wait for her many, many times. And it's not the sort of thing anybody else, you know, snowboarding would want to do because it's so fun to just, you know, bomb down the mountain. Um, and then also, you know, if, if she's starting to get tired or, or whatever at the end of the day, maybe I could go for a few more hours, but I'll stop and make camp. And again, that would be tricky to negotiate with a group of other humans. Um, but I, yeah. Um, so do you believe when you're doing, um, when you're doing mountaineering and, you know, maybe you're snowboarding down, uh, mm-hmm. do you believe that your focus and attention, even reciprocal attention on your dog? is more than it was or would be in like casual life like does it demand you to have like to think yeah. about your dog and to interact with your dog in a very unique way yeah i think so um i mean i do various things like i have a bell on her so i can hear where she is relative to where i am so that's a you know that's one thing um and you know when you're when you're snowboarding down a big mountain you can go around a little corner and then over a little hump and then suddenly you can't see you know how you were talking before it's very disorienting and you know i need i take i have a whole bunch of techniques to avoid losing her i mean could you imagine being several days out in the mountains and then where's your dog you know she's just gone like what are you going to do like that would be really bad and i did a lot of experiments over the years with her like in controlled settings like dog parks where you know i would hide from her or my wife would go off with her and then say find william and then she would search around and try to find me and it's enough for me to know she doesn't mag- you know i can't magically she does not magically find me she will run around somewhat randomly doing a search pattern trying to get a scent and that may work and she'll find me and or maybe it won't work and you know with a mountain with 30 mile an hour winds there might not be a scent and so um i do I have a whole bunch of different techniques. Like she wears a bright pink bandana, so she's easy to see. Um, she has a bell on, so as she's running, you can hear her. Um, I have a little thing called a Feinster. It it broadcasts a signal up to about a mile, and it works off grid, and it basically broadcasts a GPS location that she's at, and then shows it on my phone. So if she were up to about a mile away, maybe a half mile, I would get a pretty accurate direction and distance. 
And um, so that little gadget is, is uh, gives me a lot of peace of mind that if she, you know, if I can't see her, at least I can figure out where she is and then wait for her or yell to her. So I do a bunch of things to avoid um, getting separated from her. And then she's also, one other thing is she's a, a healer, which is like a, a, a cattle dog. They're an Australian cattle dog. They're a breed that is um, bred for herding cows. Unlike, you know, there's a lot of breeds that are, that are, in, that are maybe for show or for hunting animals, that sort of thing. And um, a, a hunting type of dog will go off chasing a scent miles away potentially. And it can be really frustrating. So um, as a cattle dog, she's always trying to watch me and, um, you know, tends to, tends to pay attention to where I am and has her instincts do not lead her to get away from me, which is nice. Do you think that's um, why these kinds of experiences are so exciting to her or satisfying? Because it's so similar? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that she has really good vision for a dog um, based on, you know, like maybe my wife is walking up to the edge of a field on the other side. She can tell that it's my wife from a distance. There's a lot of like little vision tests where I know she has better than average uh, dog vision. Um, so she frequently, when we're climbing a mountain, she'll frequently get ahead of me, turn around and really spend a lot of time staring at the horizon like all the other mountains and whatever is going on down there. And she's also really driven to get to the top, which is pretty cool to see. Like she'll like when we start getting, you know, close to the top of something, she goes for it. And then, you know, is at the top looking down, you know, at the view and waiting for me. And she's like, hurry up. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. cool. Yeah. It's so cool. And, and um, is, uh, how is she when it, when it comes to going downhill, is it the same kind of excitement to get down or is it different? Kind yeah. Of <laughs> yeah, I think so. But she, she has more excitement to get up, but, um, yeah, it's cool. Cause you can like point, you know, you kind of point in a direction and then they get excited about going in that direction That's <laughs> and like, cool. you know, seven or eight hours into some really hard, whatever you're doing, she'll love to just play catch or, you know, just very fun, fun, loving these dogs. <laughs> and, in those moments how does it how does it make you feel like seeing her excitement or getting to play with her like is it it's, like i mean it's it's just such a good positive input um because there's like there's no drama at all and it's just sure you know you, you spend days around another living thing that just plain enjoys life a lot and is in her element and you know she's not bored at all she's just all day long she's enjoying every sound every sight um, it's inspiring and beautiful. That's pretty much, you know, the, the best way to describe it. And like, you know, there's, there's no weird conversations or um, it's, it's just, it's relaxing and, and relaxing in a way that hanging out with a person for three or four days would never be, I think, um, to do this. And she, one strange thing I've noticed, she doesn't, unless there's a really good reason, she would, won't bark or make a sound like the whole time we're out there. I can go out there with days not a, not a peep, uh, unless there's, uh, she sees a person that she wants to warn me about, or like there's a bird trying to steal our food, but, um, but I don't, it, it's strange because around our house, she'll bark, you know, all the time, but when we're out in the mountains, she will go days without barking. She's very professional about it, I guess. <laughs> <That's a trip. laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. And yeah. And she's also really good at camping. Like she'll, you know, it's six or seven o'clock. She'll dive into the tent and she's happy just hibernating until seven o'clock the next day. And that is convenient. Um, so, and it, I know 
there's a wide range of dogs and uh, dogs are all very different. So I think that I've talked to people who try to do camping with their dogs. And that's one of the issues is that the dog just doesn't want to dive into the tent, curl up into a ball and wait for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. She's good at doing that, thankfully. So um, do you, do you, have you talked to enough dog owners to, to find if that's like a breed specific thing or no? I don't know if that is, there's a lot of really breed specific things like, um, breeds do have a tremendous impact on dog behavior and obviously physical characteristics, which can be really relevant to mountains. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I haven't not specifically a question of camping in a tent. I don't, I don't know what, if that's breed specific at all. Um, one thing which is obviously breed specific is poodles, um, or, you know, like labradoodle, these dogs with hair that you have to cut, mm-hmm. um, where it kind of just grows out instead of just shedding. Uh, snow will frequently get stuck to their hair. So when you see them on trails, they often have like huge chunks of snow stuck to their feet. And it's terrible. Like it's yanking on their hair and it's clearly like just physically um, very bad for being in the snow. Whereas uh, dogs that shed like healers and, um, you know, and uh, all the, all those sort of like cat, like um, herding dogs, they, the snow just falls off of them for the most part. So that's like a clear physical characteristic where it's much more adaptive to the snow. Do you have, do you give, um, does your dog wear like dog booties? Uh, No, I've, she hates to have her feet touched at all. So I've never even tried to put booties on her. But the other thing is we frequently are, you know, on let's say a 30 degree slope and it can be a bit slippery and she needs her claws and she can manage really well with her claws going up and down some pretty, pretty slippery stuff. If she had booties on, she'd just, you know, slide uncontrollably down. So instead, um, I don't do anything special with her feet, like put any oil or anything on them, but I pay a lot of attention. Like if she's, if she's stopping and licking her feet, we'll take a break. Um, and, you know, I make sure that there's no blood or anything like that. But yeah, I, I haven't found, I mean, Sometimes I imagine crampons would be nice, but I think if, if she had crampons, she'd probably cut herself with them. And again, she would hate having shoes on her feet. Um, one thing that's interesting about dogs is at least my dog is she doesn't seem to have any trouble with the cold uh, at all, as long as she's moving. So, I mean, it's kind of amazing. They're running around all day in potentially 10 degree weather in the snow and She's not cold. And you can tell very easily whether they're cold or not by or whether she's cold by just seeing if she's shivering. Like you can you can you know touch her or just see her shivering or not. Um, so that's that's interesting because you know humans can't easily walk around in the snow and your feet get, can often get really cold even with shoes on and socks on. But um, I think the way blood flow works with dogs is just very different. Um, another thing which surprises me a lot is she can get all the water she needs by eating snow which I think uh, is well known to, it probably depends on the type of snow, but is well known to be very difficult for humans to do. Um, but I'm convinced of this, having watched her do this hundreds of times where I will uh, melt snow to get water and then offer it to her and she turns it down. I mean, she'll only take it like five or six hours later in the tent when she can't get the snow. But I mean, apparently certain, maybe many different animals can you know, eat snow for all the water they need, as long as they're moving enough. Do you see, do you see her eating like a lot of snow though? Like grazing yeah. a cow? 
Yeah, she like whenever we stop or whatever, she'll like stop and grab some snow. She'll run around and grab it with her mouth. She you know loves doing that. Wow. She's definitely eating snow and ice, and it works. It fully gives her all the water she needs. Um, and uh, I'm not a biologist, but if I were, that would be some. If I were a biologist researcher, I would love to write a research paper on um, animals eating snow. <laughs> be fun to do the research too. <laughs> yeah, I think coyotes and wolves do pretty well in the snow, so I bet that. In nature, they they uh, are observed eating snow, but just a just a guess. Did she um, have to like? Did you have to teach her these things? Uh, how to move in mountainous terrain? Um, did she teach herself yeah. over time, or just knew how to do all that? I feel like so. I mean, the funny thing is, I've spent ninety nine percent of my time out in the mountains is with her only, and so in a sense, she's taught me everything I didn't learn from YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> she's taught me a lot. Um, no, it's all for her. The only things that I've, you know, I've taught her to, you know, sit, stay, move from one point to another. That's really useful to coordinate in uh, steep sections where we are using ice axe and crampons. Um, then it's very important that she does what I tell her to do. But beyond that, like all the basic techniques of moving around in mountains is just instinct for dogs. It's built into dogs and they're, they're very, very good at it. I mean, you know, the, these canines can run up and down hills that are covered in trees and rocks and they just fly up and down. It's just built in. It's what animals do. And they do it in a way humans could, I don't think ever do. I mean, humans just don't do that. I mean, dogs have four legs and the, the one drawback is in, in deep snow. She's in, she cannot move through deep powdery snow. That's like, if we hit deep powdery snow, we just have to turn around. Fortunately, frequently we, when I would post hole and it's, you know, like my legs are sinking really deeply. She doesn't sink at all because each of her feet is just like maybe 20 pounds at most that she's putting on that one foot. So she can walk pretty effectively in snow. That would be really hard for me, but it does get to be a point. Like if there's, if there's two feet of fresh snow, um, she can't move through it at all. She's a foot and a half tall and it's just nearly impossible for her. So that's a hard constraint. And that's exactly where you might want to be if you're, you know, snowboarding or something. It's really fun to be out in deep powder, but that does not work with a dog. <laughs> um, why do you, uh, why do you split board? Is it for efficiency or um, do you enjoy it over like snowshoe? So I, I have snowshoed a lot for the first two years. I, I snowshoed entirely. Um, but I remember, you know, when you're, doing something all day long, you start daydreaming. I started like trying to invent a way to snowshoe where I could slide down, <laughs> came up with some really, really, really bad ideas. Um, and I didn't know splitboarding existed, but I was camping on uh, Coleman Glacier on Mount Baker on Heliotrope Ridge up there one day and with Bella. And suddenly there are all these people up there with, they were skiing up with these funny things on the bottoms of their skis that let them go uphill, which are climbing skins. And then they would rip the skins off put them in their backpack and attach their skis together into a snowboard. And so I used to snowboard a lot and also I skateboard. So I do know how to snowboard. And I saw them doing that. And I was like, wow, I don't have to learn how I could actually, you know, ski uphill. I don't have to ski. I don't have to learn to ski to, and ski downhill. Um, but I, for, I spent about a year not doing it even after knowing it existed uh, because I was worried about getting injured. So I think um, if you look at statistics and it's pretty logical snowshoeing, you're not that likely to get hurt. Like you're not going to break your leg or twist your ankle 
just snowshoeing. It's, it doesn't happen that much. And also, um, if you look at av avalanche casualties, people who snowshoe, for whatever reason, tend to avoid getting killed in avalanches. Like the terrain you want to go over that you're naturally tend to go in as a snowshoer uh, is not uh, as like you want to go through the trees. Whereas when you're skiing or snowboarding, you want to go into more open area. And it's much more likely to avalanche where you would go as a skier or a snowshoer. I mean, as a, a snowboarder. So I held out for about a year, but then I, what happened was I got some like uphill skis, some of these, like um, just like these little kind of skis with skins on the bottom. I tried them once and I was like, Oh my God, it's so nice to be up out of the snow on a ski, mm -hmm. but I can't go downhill on these things. So the second I got back from that trip, I ordered a splitboard and yeah, I do it because it is definitely more efficient than snowshoeing. It's way funner. Um, and I know how to snowboard already, so I didn't have to learn how to do a new thing. And also the issue of danger, um, it is dangerous snowboarding. I've been hurt snowboarding before when I would snowboard at resorts, but I was also trying to do jumps and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And when I snowboard in the backcountry, I am as conservative as humanly possible, basically. Like I do not try to go as fast as possible. I don't do jumps. I, you know, I just want to get down safely. So it's a different type of snowboarding that. I don't think it's that dangerous, especially if you, uh, you know, you stay in shape. Like one of the main dangers of snowboarding is when you try to do it at the beginning of the season and you're completely out of shape. So, you know, you have to be cautious that way. So my answer is it is fun, but it's not my prime. I'm not like, I really want to ski this line or, or ride this line or whatever. That's not what I do personally. I, I split board because it's a significant, it's a, for me, it's the optimal way of moving in snowy terrain basically isn't that um uh, two different objectives um or yeah two different objectives yeah. and experiences to where you're like i have the freedom to to decide to go faster or out of the way not directly to my to the end by mm -hmm. doing tricks and i can you know uh, expend more energy to get higher and do more tricks or to go faster but when your goal is is to get somewhere in a timely manner or safely then your your values and your desires and maybe your sense of fun is even different now yeah absolutely yeah and slipboarding is or snowboarding is even the most basic snowboarding where you're just kind of cruising down something is really fun so <laughs> and way more efficient than snowshoeing um i mean even the worst snowboarding is really fun yeah it is so <laughs> after fun. It's like sliding down, like just sliding yeah. down a mountain is awesome. Man. Yeah, yeah, it is so awesome. Have, have you, um, have you or, or your dog fella had mm -hmm. any times where like you didn't want to keep going anymore because of, you know, you felt really scared or nervous or you hesitated? Did either of you experience that? And did you help the other one get through it? Like, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, both of us have, um, let's see. I mean, many times, many, many times. So one that just happened was coming down from Pikers peak to lunch counter on Mount Adams. So from like 11,000 and 9,000 feet, there's that huge open slope. We were coming down in the afternoon after summoning and there was like going up, there was a lot of ice and they went up with crampons, but it had melted enough in the afternoon with the warmth that I'll, as I started snowboarding down, like, it was, you know, how there's that sloof or whatever it's called where snow starts showering down everywhere. Yeah. It was like that, except it was all this ice 
everywhere. It was amazing, but it scared the hell out of Bella. So, so I looked, you know, I stopped and looked back and I see all this stuff coming down everywhere around us. And then she's like, just sitting there, like, I'm not going to budge. This is weird. I don't know what's going on. I'm terrified. And then she starts whimpering at me, you know, from like 50 feet up and she's like, so, you know, I gave her a pep talk and I waited. I'm like, I'm going to wait for you right here. However long it takes to, you know, wait till the, the ice stops going around everywhere. Cause that was just freaking her out. And yeah. And so I just gave her a pep talk and waited and, and then she she started going down. Um, a similar, I, in the other direction, um, I climbed Mount, Mount St. Helens in November when it was really, really icy and then tried to snowboard down. Um, and it was pretty sketchy cause it was so icy that you couldn't really get an edge and you could easily imagine just sliding. So I, Fortunately, I had my ice axe out and I totally slipped, you know, fell down on my hip and started sliding and, you know, dug my ice axe in and it worked fine. Stopped myself um, before sliding really far in an uncontrolled way, but it was scary. And I, you know, I had to get up and keep going and um, definitely was shaking quite a bit and scared. Um, and, you know, Bella seemed like she was just cruising along happily running along. No, you know, no worries at all. It wasn't, that steep it was hard to snowboard on but she has claws on all her you know feet from her nails and she seemed to have no trouble getting good traction in the ice um and was very comfortable so i saw that and um yeah i didn't feel so worried she's she also will sometimes be scared going across little streams or rivers like you know not rivers but there's a lot of streams that you come across that maybe iced over they're maybe like six inches deep you know and you can get across them with your boots and poles pretty easily but she has to kind of like find a way to jump over them or maybe go inside and it's, there can be an intense current so she, i know she could do it but she'll be pretty scared so um in those cases usually i have to give her a little pep talk and then just get going and then you know get pretty maybe two or three hundred feet away and look back and watch because if I just stand there and wait for her, she won't go. It's really strange. It's the exact opposite of coming down um, the right strategy with her. And I've seen like each time I do this, her confidence gets better, and she will just easily do it the next time. Um, but it, you know, it's it's really interesting to watch. I'm sure it's you see the same thing with your son, but um, you know, it she really like improves little by little and she can do a lot more than she knows than she thinks she can do. And when she stops, she's kind of like whimpers. And then it's like, can I do this? She's like asking me that, you know, and I'm like, yes. And there are situations where she can't. And then I will have to, like, it's too far down or it's, you know, I have to go back and I'll grab her harness and carry her um, in some situations like that. You don't, you don't know what she can and can't do until you know what she can and can't yeah. do. Right. And, and yeah. like, so what I, just like you're talking about with my son, this like um, compassion and, yeah. and, and like, for, I, I would say firmness, perhaps like, you know, you can do this, um, that like drawing that line is very difficult because it's not even black and white. Like I don't, my son didn't yeah. teach me how to draw that know. line with all children. <laughs> he taught yeah. me personally where that line was, you know? And um, what has that been like for you? Like when you had to specifically walk like 200 feet away, I've had to do this with my son. Yeah, yeah. Similar, it's more like I'm tired and we got to keep, you know, I, I can't walk anymore. And um, I realized that if I create distance and let him have his experience there, it wasn't about our dynamic, but he was able to go within himself and muster the strength yeah. to move on. 
but sometimes I've found that that's very callous and that um, it's a lot better to camp and, you know, go the next yeah. day or take a long break. So what, what's that like for you? I mean, it, I, I think it's probably similar. It's, it's interesting because it, in order to do even engage in any of that, you have to be able to communicate with the other, with the dog or the, or your son. And so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest thing is, it's amazing learning how much you can communicate with a dog over the years um, as you learn each other's language. Like there's limits, but it's impressive how much is possible if you just listen. And, and like fear, you can tell if you, if you feel your dog, you can feel their pulse and tell whether they're actually terrified or not. It's something you can't physically see, but you can feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I was at a major fireworks show in Idaho recently um, where my parents live and uh, Bella was with me and we were pretty close and she was at the beginning of the fire show she was utterly terrified and I know that because I was I was you know down on the ground holding her and not just her behavior but she, her pulse was very fast you know so I I listened to her I told her it was okay etc and in about five minutes into the show her fear went away and I could physically feel that it went away because literally her pulse went back to normal and and you know you could tell it, it's 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 interesting like because you know when, when you feel afraid you get that same sort of all those elevated things but they aren't but it's interesting how you can perceive those things in uh, in a dog as well if you actually touch the dog which you, you can't really see from a distance or you can only guess that but um yeah i guess li- knowing how your your own body works when you're afraid can inform you about how other people's uh, other people work um in, or dogs yeah i don't know i would have and i and i never like i've just never had a dog i had cats mm-hmm. though but it's never occurred to me i'm just always like pet and they seem happy when i pet them <laughs> like and that's it like i give you pets and you like my pets and i never like thought like oh wow like imagining empathizing with another animal and being like well i felt anxious before i know that like giving a hug and breathing or comforting yeah yep. them and then watching that actually happen you know, as a it's amazing. Yeah, I, I think it's really cool. Um, and I, yeah, I, so it's so the number one thing for like dog mountaineering or whatever, I would say is like the, the, the person and the dog have to be good at communicating things like that, like fear. And uh, yeah, it's all about some sort of empathy and time spent. And um, yeah. Do, do you... Um... Do you feel that's like that's deepened your relationship with your dog when you're with other dog owners? Can you tell like a subtle difference in your relationship with your dog compared to their like relationship with their dog? Or does it just seem like you're just fellow dog owners and you guys love your dogs? And I don't know. I haven't thought about that very deeply. Um, I've certain I've met people who have also hiked a lot with their dogs and and stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I uh, it, I try to think of this yeah. with uh, with raising my son. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, for, at least for like uh, for my experiences with people, I often think that my relationship with my with my mom, and my family, um, I I love them very much, and I I uh, I like to spend time with them, but. I've had these voids growing up and this sense of like community and the sense of belonging and also like 
like who are you more than what you think about the weather today and like how you feel you know about about your life today like 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 what are you afraid of like what are your desires what are your ambitions like you know what's what's uh are you insecure are you overconfident like and i i would try to ask people like this when i was younger kind of like mm -hmm. what we're doing here but a conversation mm -hmm. and they'd be like wow you're like a little detective like you just answer ask all these questions it's kind of annoying yeah. and it's like well how else how else do you get to get to know that a person like that and what i've had with my son because my son doesn't know what like at least when he was five even he doesn't know what anxiety necessarily feels like or like what exhaustion feels like and all these things um and sometimes if we talk about that in an abstract way it's like oh my dad's getting me to do something like no putting the dishes away is really tiring you know it's like uh it's 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 hard to get yeah. out of the relationship but when i go and i'm having these experiences i'm like watching my son um act himself out in the world and and then i get so much information you know because he's not even necessarily narrating what he thinks of himself he is just being himself and that's like it demands that of you when you're doing certain yeah. kinds of experiences in this life. I yeah, I think, um, yeah, with it, yeah, that it works. So it's, it's somehow like being out in the mountains for a few days with a dog allows you to have a conversation in a sense, like you just described that you can't have with, that's not possible to have otherwise with a dog because you can see what they're afraid of and what they're not afraid of and help them overcome those things and see what they want to do uh, when they're camping. Like, where do they want to go? You can, you can let them lead. You can watch what, you know, what choices do they make about how to wind their way up the mountain and why do they make them? Do they try to get to the top? Like you're, you're seeing all these things that if you could, if a dog could talk in English, they might be the things you'd ask them, but even then you would be losing something because it would all be kind of abstract and not quite true. Whereas when you just see it acted out, it's, uh, it's much more raw and true. So um, yeah, yeah, it's like a conversation, an extended conversation with, um, with an alien yeah. <laughs> that can't talk and doesn't know English. In an alien world. <laughs> yep, in an alien world. Yeah. And that's what, you know, I felt that with myself and where, I would talk to people and they're like, you know, you're so confident and, well, you really like climbing and going up into the mountains. And then, you know, I might take that person out there and we go up to like the, the summit of something. And I'm like, Oh, and you know, sometimes I get people and they're very confident, like, yeah. And others are kind of feeling it with me. And, the, and like the same thing that happens every time they're like pretty surprised. Like, wait, like you're not super confident and super like ex like thrilled about the exposure and it's like yeah I, I am a little bit but like this stuff scares me a lot you know yeah. like it's not I'm not some like hero or some person who's unlike you it's like I feel these things and I even when I try to explain that to you a lot of stuff gets lost but if we were sharing that experience like you would see how I act not how I describe how I act yeah exactly yeah exactly and it's, I mean, and the same with, uh, with Bella, I mean, I, I see what makes her afraid when we're out there and it's just, it, she does get afraid of certain things. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that, that, um, she could say, if she could speak, she might say, I would be afraid of blah, but it's a completely, but she doesn't even have to speak. She can just be in a situation and be afraid, even though I, I hopefully never put her in a situation that's actually dangerous um but you know it's it's hard hard to uh 
hard to, like she'll be afraid of um, a sound outside or something. Like when it's windy and you're camping, you know, you see that she's like, what is going on? Why is the tent going? And so, you know, you see that, um, but then you kind of calm her down. Um, yeah. And, um, and then also just before, before we finish up here, I was wondering what's been keeping you engaged in skateboarding for so long. You're not like, you know, some people out, outside of like these niches and recreation and stuff would look at like these kinds of experiences um, as like, if you're going to do them, you're going to be a professional yeah. and seeing people do it casually. Uh, you don't see a lot of people doing that. Like, this is like my hobby, you know, for, for whatever reason. And you're, you're yourself, you're like, a, you, you know, you're a mathematician, right? And you, mm -hmm. uh, you invest a lot of time into that. And that's very important to you. And obviously, if it's your profession and skateboarding isn't, it has like, it has a certain importance in that hierarchy, but you still skateboard, you still make time yeah. to skateboard and you invest in the community. Why? What about skateboarding has kept you doing it for, for so long? Let's see. Um, I think it's just, there's a whole bunch of things. So one is that it's, pr it's a pretty efficient way to do something really exciting in terms of minimal overhead, mm -hmm. like, you know, 30 minutes drive and you're, uh, that's how far it is to drive to my ramp or you can go to a skate park or whatever, or just go outside in the, you know, in the, on the road. And so it just has a whole bunch of, uh, nice features. It's really good exercise. Um, I mean, a big deal is that in 2012, we built this, you know, huge vert ramp. And so that keep, that's a continual draw because uh, I, um, you know, I'm involved in that project. So, so, so there's that. Um, my brother, who's a similar age to me, also skateboards vert. So it's, you know, it's something we can do together. It's like anytime um, he, he visits me or I visit him, we're going to go skate vert. So there's like a family thing there. Um, oh, it's, it's like if I could with the skating yeah. vert with your family, is mm -hmm. there what's like so and you link it to like an experience that you have that's exciting, um, with low overhead? Um, but if there wasn't like a skill orientation to it where like you could progress over time, um, and it was more commercial, like you could buy more higher and higher levels of excitement or joy, right? Uh -huh. um, is hmm. would you would you lose something in that relationship like is there something about like having something like we're skaters to your brother and yeah. meeting him and like sharing all this history of skateboarding as opposed to like let's go ride some roller coasters buddy <laughs> like, well related to that um when we were kids like 12 where we were like 12 13 years old we used to fight i mean for years we fought like just like you know crazy kids and then he got into skateboarding and then I saw him skateboarding and I got into it. And like from that moment and, you know, for the rest of our lives, we didn't fight anymore at all. And I mean, that's a pretty intense transformation and it was totally attributable to skateboarding. And it was somehow the, I mean, a lot of it involved the common shared um, learning how to do tricks, like seeing like, like, the, like there's every, I, I remember seeing him do a 540 when he was like 13 years old in our backyard on our ramp. And I was like, wow, my brother just did that. Like nobody else in our town ever will do that or did that. And he did it right there in front of me. Holy crap. <laughs> it was just a weird thing to see. And it like the kite, it generates respect in a way that um, in a very, very positive way. 
Like, you know, it wasn't respect because I can think of a lot of negative ways in which respect can be generated, but it was like the most positive possible way to, to generate respect because I would have loved to do that. There's no way I just could not like figure out how to do it. But, but um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. And like, yeah, over the years um, it's not just being able to learn to do, it's like specific tricks he landed when we were skating together and conversely, um, you know, they all have meaning to both of us. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think the, the challenge and the skill-based aspects of it are, are very, are very, very important, much more so than just the fun of, you know, moving around on the ramp. It feels fun to skateboard, but a lot of the fun is, um, is the challenge of figuring out how to do a trick. Cause it's really freaking scary to, you know, to put something down, even when you've done it many times, if you haven't done it for a while, mm-hmm. like, it's just like, there's this wall, uh, and it's, it's hard to explain how scary it is. Um, especially on a big ramp to like, cause you have to convince yourself by instinct to do the thing. You know, it's like, you have to convince yourself that you're going to do this thing and then do it. And when you do it, you don't have any time to think about it. So it's, it's very uh, quick. <laughs> and and um, is there some kind of consequence to doing that? Like the half commitment to where like, Oh, I could do this. And then you're like doubting yourself as you're yeah. doing it. Like, is there feedback where, um, yeah, I mean, you, that out? it's very, very much you're getting a sense of how you, uh, are convincing yourself that you're not afraid of something, but you actually are just as afraid or even more afraid than you could possibly have imagined. Um, I mean, cause if you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to try to do this trick. I'm going to drop in blah, 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 do this trick. And I'm not afraid of it at all. And you convinced yourself and you're not shaking at all, but then you go to do it and you just bail. What does that say? Um, it tells you that. Uh, you probably are very much afraid of that trick. And it's just like at a more subconscious level. And then if you try it again, it, it reinforces that you really, no matter what you're lying to, no matter how you're lying to yourself, you're definitely afraid of something. Um, like fear is a very strange thing because you, you uh, it, like getting past it, it, it's very psychological, but at the same time, you can't, it's very hard to tell if you actually are afraid of something or not without actually successfully doing that thing. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, you, I'm sure you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, and I mean, yeah, it's, it's worrisome. Like if you keep trying to do something and bailing constantly, is it, are you just learning how to fail at attempting that trick? That's a, a big worry. Um, but it's certainly better than not trying at all. Because not doing it at all is a very good way of failing at learning a trick. So, so what does that say for um, for these dichotomy of like a growth mindset and a fixed mindset? What does that say for skateboarding and its relationship to, you know, learning about what a growth mindset is like and embodying that? I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. I wonder. Um, yeah. I, I have like a lot of, like Ollie's hard. Yeah. And it looks magical in a lot of ways. And you like, for me, I didn't learn it in a day. Um, today was the first time that I could Ollie off of a, of like a four inch ledge and like, and yeah, mm-hmm. I was able to Ollie off of it and land on the skateboard. And I've been skating like on a weekly basis for over a year with my son. Cause it's like his thing and he loves it. Nice. And yeah. And like that um, in the past, you know, I see all these people doing way more than that, like doing some insane sick stuff at the skate park as a kid. And like, I couldn't even roll down a ramp 
at that time when I was a kid, because it was really scary and intimidating for me. And so I just kind of give up. And I, I didn't realize like, you know, if you think of like exposure therapy, right, afraid of the water, and mm -hmm. you get exposed to pictures of the water and walk to the water and all that other stuff. And like, so for me, like going down ramps, again, I picked up a skateboard. And as an adult, I was scared. And I would, used to have this relationship, dummy, why are you scared? Everyone's going down the ramp. And I go down the ramp and it's like, wow, it's hard to balance on a skateboard when you, you don't have <laughs> a lot of practice. But over time, I realized that you can regress, you know, like you have a goal, I want to roll down the ramp and you could, the ramps like, you know, six feet tall and a way to accomplish the goal is, is to just regress and create little checkpoints along yep. the way. Yep. And, and, you know, and like, that's a people have been trying to tell me that ever since I was in school and like book reports or doing essays, you got to plan it out and like take it one step at a time and, and be organized. And like actually figuring out what those checkpoints are, the strategy involved in that, like you shouldn't underestimate how difficult that could be. Like, it's not at all obvious. Um, like it might be for learning a skateboard trick, you have to go out of your way to find another, you might have to build a ramp or find a skate park with a certain, you know, with a certain height or something. And, or you might have to, like, I learned um, backside alley nose picks, which is a trick. And I learned that by learning another trick, which was, you know, kind of led to that trick. And so there's like a whole sequence of, of things that might take a year just to figure out how to learn a trick without just hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that, that definitely overlaps with, um, you know, mountaineering and all these other things we're talking about because you have that, the route finding in uh, skateboarding is figuring and in like you're saying homework and all that is um, figuring out what sequence of things is likely to lead to getting to finally try the trick to, to genuinely try the trick with the right foundations in place. <laughs> um, and you might, I mean, you might not have the time, like you, you might figure out the strategy to get there is I have to learn this other thing, which requires learning this other thing sufficiently well. And there might just not be enough time. Like you maybe don't skate enough each week. Like you can only, there's like unvert at least I can maybe I can keep 30 tricks if I do them every week, but I can't do 50 because I just like you, I can't maintain that level of uh, mastery because I don't have enough time and my my body just can't take it. Um, so there's like a lot of physical constraints you just have to acknowledge uh, it, and, and learn over, the, over time. Is it is it true um, that it's difficult to not dilute yourself or to delude yourself and and say that these are immovable constraints that I cannot do when in reality sometimes they are things you can control and yeah and, and for like, sure not saying for your own self but it's very confusing for me because you know like um I don't know if I there's several things that I have bailed on because I've deluded myself into that's just how it is and then I realized you know reconvening at it and being honest with myself the the reality of what's going on and what I'm capable of and in skateboarding like I could, um, I feel like there's like that unambiguous feedback is, is, is yeah. so helpful. And like you're saying, are you really afraid? And sometimes you don't know if you're truly afraid of that thing until you step up and encounter it, you know? And like, um, it helps because it helps me determine my self-worth and weed out the difference between my self-worth and just what I am able to do based on my constraints in my life um, and my physical abilities. And that, that can be difficult to sort out for people, man. I, I, at least I, I yeah. think so. Or maybe it's trivial. In it. No, I agree completely. Um, yeah. Did, 
did you ever when you were a kid and you guys were skateboarding and stuff did you get mm -hmm. satisfaction over accomplishing academic things like you did accomplishing um tricks and skateboarding and did they feed into each other uh no <laughs> i definitely i don't think i got much at the same time um not really uh yeah i don't yeah i mean the thing that strikes me is how different uh you know math research is from skateboarding from business software engineering um climbing mountains they're all very i mean you feel like they should be more similar but they're genuinely very very different things and it's it's really challenging um to for me to have any answers to a lot of your questions about the connections between these things i think it's if nothing else it just aims to the or it just supports the value of doing a reasonably wide spectrum of things in your life because you know if you just skateboarded you miss out on um a lot of very different challenges and ways of understanding yourself or if you just did academics you miss out on like a whole whole issues of fear just don't come up because nothing we're doing is dangerous really <laughs> and that's where I, you know i Same find way. even yeah. in, in where they don't relate it's interesting because you i look at you and you're like a representation to me anyways of something that i i'm learning more and more about in the last five years where like i understand like specialists but that really didn't that wasn't working for me and like i i like to have these different things that are seemingly unrelated even though it's a consequence of maybe not being able to develop myself in one single thing as much as you know mm -hmm. my, my friends who are like really obsessed with jujitsu or really obsessed with skateboarding but in those groups i find that i can't relate with everybody there in that i like other things too and so I just look at you and I see you pretty successful professionally in terms of you've done things for yourself professionally and you've consistently grown your skill sets that are seemingly unrelated. And it's like, who's like William, like the whole being of William, you know, and um, learning about your relationship with your dog and your professional life and your self-image. Um, it's a very interesting thing to learn about because you seem to be very developed in variety of places in your life you know even things that don't relate to you as a mathematician mm -hmm. and i used to think just put this on the side the, another thing is is that when i watched tv shows as cartoons um they would represent people you know like a whole person as individual characters like parts of that yeah. person perhaps or or not and this is how things truly were that there was someone who was really obsessed with academics but didn't have a lot of physical ability or someone who was really into sports, you know, and they didn't know much about like the outdoors or, or something like that. But I, I'm for me. And then I see meet other people in this life. It's like, you guys, there's people out there who have these hobbies that have nothing to do with being able to be successful with, with money and wealth that feeds them and fulfills them. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. You attain that through your whole life. And I look around and there's some people in my life that are sedentary and have chronic like physical um, problems or chronic emotional problems, combination of both. And I look at individuals who are climbing and, and, and doing all these other things, skateboarding. And there's some of these people who are like doing this into what I would consider like, you know, midlife and like all the way to almost the end of life. Like think of Fred Becky and climbing. And yeah. that excites me. 
So, and I love showcasing people like yourself, William. Cool. Cool, man. Well, that was a nice wrap up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the interview and producing this. And um, yeah, this is great um, to becoming human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And where can yeah. people check out more about uh, Seattle Vert Ramp and any of your other work? So see, my website is wstein.org, W-S-T-E-I-N.org. Um, I have a website that I maintain called vertramp.org. And it has a list of like 40 or 50 vert ramps around the world. And the first one in that list is Seattle Vert Ramp. And if you click there, you get more information about the ramp, um, which is in, it's physically in West Seattle and uh, is something, if you are interested in skating vert, you can come out and skate it. Um, let's see what else. Uh, for my full-time normal job, I uh, run a company and our product is um, some educational slash data analysis collaboration software called CoCalc. So it's C-O-C-A-L-C.com. So it lets you uh, do things related to computer programming and mathematics in your web browser collaboratively with other people. And, uh, and I also, um, another website I've been very involved with is called sagemath.org. So S-A-G-E-M-A-T-H.org. And that's an open source free piece of software for doing mathematics. So, those are some links. All right. Um, and I'll be sure to leave those in the show notes. Uh, there's actually one thing, if you don't mind, William, that sure. I'm going to kick myself if I didn't ask you. Um, why do you, why is it vert skating that you, that you like so much huh. over like skateboarding? Cause I've never vert skated before. And I see, you know, all these examples in culture, but yeah. I've only skated parks and street. I, mean, I think two things. One is it's, well, a couple of things, but one is it's really fun because um, you really, I mean, get, you're really, you go really fast, but at the same time, um, a vert ramp typically is pretty clean. So you're not going to hit a rock or something and go flying into the concrete or whatever. Um, but you can, compared to anything else, you can get, go faster and just cruise in a way that you just can't do otherwise um, in a bowl or on the street, uh, just because it's designed for that. Another thing is I grew up, I, I got into skateboarding in Texas in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when vert was really, really popular. And there were vert ramps around, um, numerous ones in North Texas where I lived. So I grew up in that you know, environment. Um, so I guess having, it's one of those things where when you've done it, you, you realize how fun it is and how, how nice it is. Um, and it's kind of clean and I don't know, it's, it's intense. I mean, it, you go really fast and you're constantly changing directions. It's a, it's a pretty intense swing set basically, <laughs> um, but it's hard to, it's hard to uh, explain what it feels like if you haven't done it, I guess. Um, but the, the short answer would be, I grew up doing it in Texas and it's really fun. Just, it is. I mean, <laughs> you, like when you have it, when you drop in and take a run, 
if you haven't done it in a week or two, you're like, oh, it's a good thing I know how to do this because this is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds. <laughs> you know great, what I mean? Man. Yeah, I've learned so, to learning to carve bowls, and I'm at the point where like yeah. I can consistently pump through a whole bowl, and nice. all time goes away, and there's like this level of excitement and just fun that's like a ten exactly. minute drive away. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's exactly that reason. Cool. Yeah, sweet. Thank you so much, William. I appreciate. It. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. I love getting to talk to William. He's made me think about the relationship that I have with my son and what I like and he likes and how uh, how we've deepened our relationship through the experiences we've shared. And what mitigating danger and encountering real hazard and danger um, means to me and how it's affected my life you know 19 years ago or when I was 19 years old it's about eight years ago now um was the first time that I felt like I was doing things that pushed my ability to mitigate danger and things felt real and serious you know not because it was the right thing to do or I lectured myself that way not because of some abstraction but because of the reality of it. And that helped me deal with these nebulous and abstract things of like how to be a good person, how to put your things away and be tidy, how to show up on time, what preparation means. Like, I think it's like the antithesis of doomsday preppers. They imagine one day that there's this great danger that's going to come. And so they prepare and prepare for to deal with the the potential danger in the future. However, there's activities that are dangerous now that threaten to kill you now. And isn't it great fun to try to avoid death? To do these things that threaten you to confront such hazards with with love and excitement to go and climb a mountain or jump a gap with full commitment and realization at what could happen if it goes wrong and being truly prepared to encounter the worst and best scenarios these games that we play these experiences that we have are far more meaningful than they let on and my sense tells me that even if it's not something you would want to do professionally, it has a lot of value when it's done casually. And I think that William is an example of that. These skateboarding and mountaineering have nothing to do with his profession, but they have everything to do with who he is. And that directly affects his ability to maneuver in his profession and innovate and perform and help. You can find out more about William at vertramp.org, wstein.org, cocalc.com, and sagemath.org. I'll be sure to leave all the links in the show notes. And if you guys want to learn more about dogs, be sure to shoot me an email uh, at willnelson.com at zoho.com 
I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Bye.